welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, and um, just wanted to bring uh, some new content for you guys this week. So this is going to be um, a solo show um, on my final essay regarding divine hiddenness, specifically looking at the J.L. Schellenberg's analogy argument is what I, I wrote my final essay for my philosophy of religion class on. And um, it's kind of coming on the, the heels of, you know, um, David Russell and David Pullman did an excellent show on proselytize or apostatize, uh, debating Andrew Knight and David Johnson, the atheists, on, on J.L. Schellenberg's main, main argument or his conceptual argument, um, again, for atheism from divine hiddenness. Um, so this is, uh, I, I felt this might be a good sort of supplemental, I'll link to their show in the sources. and. Um, this is just sort of a good supplemental. I'm not going to go over what they've already covered and, and refuted that argument. Um, but this argument is a, a more sim simple or more intuitive argument that speaks to the common man, I think. It's, it's his argument from analogy and that sort of thing. So I wanted to include a, a link on that just in terms of announcements before we get into that. So, so yeah, I was on the proselytize or apostatize show last night. Uh, kind of saying a farewell to David Pullman. He's moving on as the co-host of that show to, to do a job. And uh, Caleb Jackson is is uh, taking over. Um, uh, again, Caleb Jackson's a, a great will make a great host. Uh, obviously, David Pullman did a great job on that show as well. Um, so he'll be missed. But yeah, with Caleb Jackson coming in, it, um, thankfully, we, we have a good replacement and that sort of thing. So I'll post that up probably next week. Uh, um, and yeah, I'll continue on with, with the other shows that I mentioned. So that said, let's get straight into this. So, so what is J.L. Schellenberg's argument from analogy? Okay, so basically what he does is he asks, the first thing he does is he asks us to imagine uh, three situations. So in the first situation, he says, look, let's imagine that you're a child playing hide and seek with your mother in the woods, hide behind this tree, um, and you keep waiting. Not the best hiding place, certainly a grown-up like your mother who's as smart and clever as your mom, she would have been able to find you pretty easily unless she kind of pretends not to be able to see you or something like that. But, strangely enough, she doesn't find you. You're, you're waiting there for one hour, then two hours, and finally uh, you realize, hey, I, I don't hear my mom looking for me or anything like that, and she hasn't found me, so what is going on here? Um, so what do you do? You, you realize you come out from your hiding spot and you realize you can't see your mom anywhere or anything like that. Uh, so you start calling out for her, mom, mom, where are you? Um, and yet no response. So that's the first, the first, uh, analogy or the first situation he wants to have you guys reminded of to, for you guys to think of. Then he changes the story a little bit with his second scenario. He says, pretend you're that same child, but this time you're a child with amnesia. Um, let's say during the course of playing hide and seek with your mom, you fall down and hit your head and you, you get amnesia. You know, your, your memory only goes back so far and you don't know whether you have a mother or not or who your mother is. So once again, after a little bit, you, you come out and, and then you see other children, they have mothers and you think, man, that's a great relationship. I'd love to have that. And so you start asking these people, you know, hey, do I have a mom? Have you seen my mom if I have one? Um, 
and everyone's like, oh, we, we don't know, we don't know, um, and stuff like that. So you, yeah, you go on a search, you search out for your for your mother um, as diligently as you can. You ask strangers about them and that sort of thing. And you know, the best people can do is just say, well, maybe your mom's dead or some, something like that. Not too comforting, but yeah, you, you know, you do everything you can. You're calling out for your mom, you're seeking in every way you possibly can, and yet no answer from your mother. She's just nowhere to be found. Um, so that's the second situation. And then we have the third and final situation that he gives. And he says, okay, well, now let's pretend again you're a small child uh, and also you've fallen down, hit your head, and you have amnesia. So you can't remember if you have a mother, uh, let alone who your mother is. But this time you're in the middle of this huge rainforest, dangerous place. You know, there's snakes and vipers and jaguars and cougar and stuff and, you know, bears or whatever it is and you start calling out to your mom and many times because you're you're scared you're in this pain you're in misery and stuff like that in this rainforest and once again for days no response from your mom if you had one and finally in your last minutes a jaguar comes out pounces on you and tries to kill you and in your final moments before you die once again you scream out for your mom please help me no response and you're dead. Um, so these are the three um, scenarios or analogies that J.L. Schellenberg gives in his argument, the main ones. And he provides a couple others, um, you know, as sort of an afterthought. He says, well, look, we can modify some parameters to be applicable or analogous to other situations. But he feels that these are the three main ones that get across his point. And they say, and he says, well, this is an exactly analogous to what we have with God uh, as the loving mother and God seekers as the young children and that sort of thing. So the, the first thing he tries to do in terms of establishing the truth of his analogy argument is he says, okay, well, obviously in these three situations that he outlines, everyone on the face of the earth would expect a loving and caring mother if she uh, to reach out to her child and to answer back and to save him from this hungry jaguar or to call out to him and, and, and that sort of thing, if she's able, as long as she is able to, we would have this expectation for the mother to answer the call of her child, young child in every single one of these situations, so long as she's able to, you know, she's not trapped in a pit or she's not knocked unconscious and can't hear the calls or, or something like that. And I think that is f true. I, I mean, by definition, yeah, we would all intuitively say, yeah, so loving and caring mother would definitely, we would definitely expect her to answer the child and, and reveal herself to the child, so to speak, and not remain hidden if she was able to in those situations. And uh, just going into a bit of detail, so I don't answer this in my essay, but Schellenberg uh, says, well, we can establish this expectation on the basis of five fundamental conditions for what it means to be loving, you know, the property of loving. And he says, number one, uh, a loving mother would consider each of her child's serious re requests important and seek to provide a quick response. Um, now, I actually disagree with this one technically. I, I would I would just modify it or qualify it and say a, a loving mother would consider each of her child's requests important and seek to provide a quick res a quick response as soon as possible. Um, so I would just qualify it with that little as soon as possible. Uh, because sometimes mothers do have to give delayed responses and stuff like that um, for situations beyond their control or uh, for the benefit of their child or something like that. So 
the second one, uh, the rest of the five I fully agree with the way he states them. So number two, a loving mother would wish to spare her child needless trauma, or more positively speaking, would wish to foster her child's physical and emotional well-being. Check. That makes sense to me. Three, a loving mother would seek to avoid encouraging in her child false or misleading thoughts about herself and about their relationship. Check. That makes sense to me. True. Um, and then fourthly, a loving mother would want personal interaction with her child whenever possible, both for the joy it brings as well as for its own sake. It's good in and of itself. And uh, again, I check. Uh, yep, I fully agree. Uh, and then finally, the fifth reason, he says, is, well, look, a loving mother would miss her child if separated from her. And it's clear that um, each of these propositions are, tr are true, uh, with the exception of number one, where I add that little qualifier as soon as possible, or as quickly as possible kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think these are definitely true about a loving mother and her child. And secondly, I, I also think that these conditions are applicable or analogous to the situation of God and God's seekers. Um, all of them would seem to apply to a loving God, just as they would to a loving mother, in my um, opinion. So under that guise, yeah, we can establish we would have an expectation of sorts for God to reveal himself just like the mother, so long as uh, God is truly analogous to the mother and that God's seekers are truly analogous to the young child in these uh, situations or analogies that Schellenberg gives. Okay, so uh, having established this uh, expectation with respect to the fictitious loving mother and the fictitious young child in these scenarios, um, before looking at uh, whether God is truly analogous to the loving mother and whether God's seekers are truly analogous to the young child, we first have to say, well, are these situations, these three situations that he gives, are they analogous to the relationship between God and God's seekers? Um, well, uh, according to Schellenberg, he argues, well, look, um, there are many examples of some people who have started out totally assured of the presence of God in their lives and their relationship with him. Um, and then somehow they lose all of this due to doubts that arise regarding their theistic beliefs. And this is obviously true. I have to raise my own hand and say, yep, I fit into this category. This situation is real. Um, so yeah, I, this fits Th these kinds of situations between the mother and the, the mother of the first situation where they're playing hide and seek, the child knows his mom personally and knows she exists and has a relationship with her. And then all of a sudden after hiding behind a tree, she's gone and nowhere to be found. You know, you, he lost her, his relationship and starts to doubt, did, did I really ever have a mother? What, what's going on? Am I losing my mind or something? Um, so yeah, this, this is obviously analogous to the situation of God and God seekers, and I myself have fit into this category at one time. Um, okay, well, what about the second situation? Well, uh, once again, there, there are many examples of uh, people who've never um, really been aware of having a relationship with God in their lives and that sort of thing, but nonetheless, they are... Uh, quote-unquote open and desirous of such a relationship with God um, but you know they go on this search for God and despite their best efforts God remains hidden from them and um, I think 
I think that there there definitely are examples of this. Once again, I myself was one of these for for a number of years. I was open and desirous of a relationship, but God was hidden for me from me uh, until He finally revealed Himself to me in May of 2018, and I converted to Christ and that sort of thing, to Christianity. But um, yeah, um, there there can be some as we'll get when I get to the assessment part, um, we'll see that there is some qualifications and nuance here in terms of what it means to be open and desirous of a relationship with God. Uh, because I don't think that everyone who says they're open and desirous of a relationship with God really are. And I think that most people that say they are really aren't. Um, but uh, nonetheless, in principle, that yeah, there, there are people at the very least at face value who say they're open and desirous of such a relationship. So um, for the sake of argument, let's give it a check for now um, and say, yeah, that there are people at least that seem to be in this situation, uh, just like the child of the second scenario who uh, playing hide and seek with his mom and then hits his head and becomes amnesia. He forgets about his mom or his relationship with her. And, doesn't know if he ever had one, but he goes out and he sees, well, these, these other people have such a great relationship with their mom. Uh, I want one too. And they go out and seek, you know, just like God, some God seekers apparently look at, are jealous and they see the relationship that Christians have with God and church and stuff like that. And their desires, they want that, what the Christians have. Okay. Uh, finally with the final situation, uh, well, this is just obvious. I mean, the world is full of dangers we, and troubles of various types. Um, so we, we often find ourselves in certain situations where we're calling out to God for help in our mo time of need or our lowest moment. And we really want that relationship with God. We're depressed or, you know, we need, a f we need someone to, to love and care about us or something like that. So, so yeah, this happens. And in including literally in terms of the young child being in the jungle and being eaten by a jaguar, this literally happens at times. Some, sometimes... Uh, people get lost in the woods or something like that and get attacked by bears. So, um, and they might cry out to God for help in that moment or something. So, yeah, um, I think that these these scenarios are, at, at the very least at face value, definitely analogous to the situations between God and God-seekers. Uh, given that Schellenberg then argues, well, uh, loving God is exactly analogous to a loving mother because all five of those conditions would apply to God. Um, you know, we would expect uh, a loving God um, who gives birth to the human race and has all those kids um, to be unimaginably close to them. And he would consider their serious requests um, for him to reveal himself seriously and try to provide a response as quickly as possible. Um, number two, God would wish to spare all human beings needless trauma and want to foster their well-being, both physically and emotionally. Um, he would also seek not to encourage in human beings false or misleading thoughts about God and his divine human relationship with them. Um, he would want personal interaction with human beings whenever possible um, for the joy of that relationship. And finally, five, yeah, God would miss uh, such personal interaction if it were absent. And we know that these are true both from the Bible, divine revelation, um, as well as from uh, perfect being theology. And uh, given that God is supposed to be unsurpassably loving and caring as a maximally great being. Um, and obviously by evaluating the situations, we see that, well, humans at the very least at face value are analogous to those young childs, to the young child in those um, analogies that he gives.
So, so yeah, with all those pieces in place, Schellenberg finally summarizes his argument from analogy, which is an inductive argument. Uh, if you're following along, you know, it makes the conclusion probably true, or as Schellenberg thinks, very probably true. It's not guaranteed to be true like a deductive argument, but it's just an inductive one, an argument from analogy. So yeah, just to sort of summarize in premise format what Schellenberg's argument is, it's a simple modus uh, tollens argument where you deny the consequence. So you have an if-then premise, premise number one, if God exists, then this form, then the form of hiddenness relevant to these analogies does not occur uh, for divine human relationships. And again, ju just to clarify, so it's not technically speaking a modus tollens or a denying the consequent argument because that is a form of deductive logical argumentation, but it, it's the same type of argument. It, it's the same structure uh, just as an inductive, within an inductive form as opposed to the deductive thing. So it doesn't have that technical name of modus tollens or denying the consequent, but I'm just calling it that because it, it follows the exact same form in inductive uh, as an inductive argument, so you know, just to help illustrate how the argument functions and why it's a cogent or, or uh, a cogent argument there. Okay, uh, premise two denies the consequent, right? So that if God exists as the antecedent, then this form of divine hiddenness does not occur. That's the consequent. But then premise two says, well, this form of divine hiddenness does occur. So it's denying or negating that divine hiddenness of this sort doesn't occur relevant to these analogies. Therefore, it follows uh, that probably God does not exist. Um, so that's the argument in a nutshell. Those two premises, if God exists, then this form of divine hiddenness does not occur. Premise two, but this form of divine hiddenness does in fact occur. Um, therefore, probably God does not exist. So, so that's Schellenberg's argument from analogy in a nutshell there. So, all right, great. Um, let's get into uh, some assessments. So I finished the first part of the essay. The first half we had to do strictly expositional or exegetical work on what Schellenberg said. Uh, but now the second half, let's get into assessing whether this argument is a flop um, or if it works, if it's successful. Okay, so the first thing to be aware of is Schellenberg ar Schellenberg's argument has a very limited scope. Um, you know, obviously, someone might argue, well, the argument is disanalogous because maybe I don't believe God is a maximal great being. He's not unsurpassably loving. Or maybe he's not omnipotent. Um, so like the mother, he can't help but allow these situations to remain hidden in these some of the, at the very least in some of these situations. And Schellenberg says, well, look, for, forget about that. I don't care about those versions of God, pagan gods with a small g. His argument only applies to the traditional Western philosophical conception of God as a maximal great being. He's trying to prove that that isn't true. By atheism, he means the traditional theism is false and not true. Secondly, um, uh, he also, Schellenberg also gets into, well, what does he mean by hidden? Uh, you know, does he mean that literally? Does he say, no, this maximal great being God, the traditional theistic God, does exist, but he's literally playing peekaboo. He's literally hiding behind a rock or something like that. Obviously not. That's not what divine hiddenness means in this argument. So he defines that, and he says, look, by hiddenness, I mean specifically uh, the absence of convincing evidence for the existence of God. 
And then he narrows that down. Within the context of his argument from analogy in particular, he means specifically the absence of some kind of positive experimental result in the search for God. So his argument from analogy is focused on the latter definition of hiddenness or divine hiddenness. Uh, the absence of some kind of positive experimental result in the search for God. That's an interesting definition. It has a very limited scope. Um, so, yeah, um, just wanted to clarify those uh, definitional, potential definitional disputes right out of the gate. Um, and then finally, next we can get into actually assessing the substance or the meat of his argument. My beef with this uh, comes in three categories. Again, I had limited space. It was only a 4,000 word essay. 2,000, approximately 2,000 words had to be devoted to exegetical work only. Uh, and then that left me only 2,000 words for assessment. So I came up with three disanalogies, or, uh, things that I think make the situation of the mother and child analogies or examples disanalogous to the uh, disanalogous to the uh, God and God seeker relationship. So the first obvious analogy for, for everyone in the know is that, um, well, God hasn't remained hidden like the mother. Uh, he's actually revealed himself. So this whole argument from hiddenness is complete rubbish. Um, in the first place, Lord our God has given us natural theology in general. Revelation, it, the Bible says it's obvious from nature that God exists. And I think this is true in a properly basic way. We have God is created within every human being, regardless of their circumstance, a sensus divinitatis, or a spirit, which is the faculty of their soul of how they relate to God and come to knowledge of the existence of God, generally speaking. And I think this can be grounded in a number of experiences. It, it, it's not just in the West. People in the East are able to come to a concept of this uh, maximally great being God. People in the Americas prior to the, the you know, colonialists came, coming over were able to come to, uh, with this notion and that sort of thing. And it's because God has given us, um, revealed himself in a properly basic way through this sensus divinitatis and or through this our spirit faculty of our souls to come up with properly basic beliefs that he exists. Uh, beyond that, we also have natural theology, logical argumentation where we can reason through our minds and know that he exists. And the ancient Greek pagan philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, were able to do that. Okay, so, so that brings up the obvious question then. So why the heck is it not the case that every human being on the planet knows that God exists? Uh, and the obvious answer from a Christian theist, traditional Western Christian theist perspective is, well, that's sin. Um, the, you know, free will theodicy, uh, Adam and Eve freely chose to sin and every human being freely chooses to sin and thereby corrupt all of their faculties, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual, how we relate to God have been adversely affected to varying degrees, depending on how much we freely choose to be infected by sin and corrupt uh, our faculties through this sin disease as it's known as. So, okay, well, given that we're in this situation, surely God would be expected to respond to this. I mean, the Bible says no man in a natural state can come to belief in God or come to a saving knowledge of, of God if left to their own. So it's on God again. God is again expected to do something to address this state of wretched sinfulness. He wouldn't just say, oh, you wretched sinners, you had your chance, you blew it to heck with you. 
uh, no, he, he actually has to reveal himself more. And God draws us in, in John chapter 6, verse 44. Calvinists like to say, you know, God first draws us so that we can respond. And I think so he does this in the Christian era through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, which repairs our sensus divinitatis and or our um, spirit faculty to such a degree, to varying degrees, again, depending on how much we are choosing to be heart of heart or allowing the Holy Spirit to repair us. And, you know, some, some people are more resistant to the witness of the Holy Spirit than others. But I think that the Holy Spirit does play an enabling role to varying degrees for every single human being so that they have an opportunity, equal opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of God, despite the damage to their spirits. The Holy Spirit plays that role uh, of repairing it and providing us and enabling us an equal opportunity, if not an equal outcome uh, in all cases. And secondly, God has also given us divine revelation. That's provable. Um, you know, we, Christian apologetics, apologists and philosophers and theologians and scientists have proven that God has revealed himself through the Bible and confirmed that message with divine miracles from the Shroud of Turin or the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, other evidences people might go, messianic prophecies and that sort of thing. Um, these, in addition to any properly basic beliefs that we gain through the repair, the enablement work of the inner witness and self-authenticating inner witness of the Holy Spirit, we also have these objective evidences from divine miracles that confirm his divine revelation and religious message to mankind where we can gain new knowledge about who God is and, you know, get that specific revelation as to who he is, what he wants, what he did for us, and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's the, the first disanalogy is this atheist is just asserting and assuming that God hasn't revealed himself and has remained hidden. That's not true. He has. Okay, uh, so what's the second disanalogy then? And this is where I... I uh, focus on the disanalogy between the the God seeker, or what J.O. Schellenberg just calls the seeker, versus a real seeker. And this says basically that, well, actually, the, the child is really seeking his mother. But that's not the case, at least not with all people who claim to be seeking or God seeking God or to be God seekers. They're not necessarily really seeking God. So what do I mean by uh, be really seeking God? What does it mean to be a quote-unquote real seeker? And there are basically three criterion um, that I've come up with. So number one, you have to be open-minded to the existence of God. You, you're genuinely and sincerely open to believing that this God exists. And secondly, you're desirous of it. You're, you're actively seeking the truth to the best of your ability. So it's relative, you know, some people are smarter than others, some people have more time than others, and that sort of thing. So there is some relativity to this criterion, obviously, but you're doing your level best to arrive at the truth, and you're actively seeking out God and wanting, seeking this really loving relationship with him eternally. Um, and then finally, thirdly, you also have to be willing to obey or to submit to the divine truth, to God, once you discover uh, the truth about him. And I submit that a lot of times people will fail uh, one or more of these criteria. Some people are just closed-minded and not open-minded. They say they're open-minded, but you can tell they're just closed-minded bigots, and they're not really interested about God or not. Um, 
secondly, some people are maybe open-minded about it, but they're not willing to do anything. They just want, you know, I'll sit on my rumps and let God come to me. No, you've got to actively seek. you got to do the work. And why would that be necessary to have an eternally loving relationship with God? Well, because by doing that, like what I did as a real seeker, actively pursuing him, that helped develop certain salvation-fit character traits or relationship divine relationship fit character traits and that sort of thing. You know, I grew this hunger and appreciation for the truth as I continued to actively seek it and want to get more and more of it. You know, there, there are various traits that are developed through God allowing people the time to seek and that being willing to actively seek. And finally, being willing to obey this maximal great being. He is the standard of moral perfection. If you want to enjoy an eternally loving relationship with God, as well as other God-seeker, real seekers in that for all of eternity, you have to obey that morally perfect standard in order for those loving relationships to obtain. You can't have sinners, people that want to rebel against a morally perfect standard and do immoral things, then that'll just be like you'll turn heaven into hell type thing. Or like just like this earth is being corrupted by sin and that sort of thing. So you have to be willing to obey and, and submit to the truth about God and, and do what he says because he is the standard of moral perfection and everything like that. So yeah, if you fail to do that, if you fail one of these criterions, God has no obligation to reveal himself to you. And we would expect him to remain hidden from you because there's no point in revealing himself. He's not going to get an eternal relationship out of you. And may even do it may even be when we get to the next disanalogy may even be counterproductive to God's purposes to reveal Himself to people who aren't really seeking Him. So I think um, Schoenberg's argument and argument from analogy here is disanalogous in that he's asserting and assuming without any real qualification that there are real seekers to whom God remains hidden, and he seems to think that there are lots of these cases because he just takes the word for it, but. He seems to have no recognition that some people aren't open-minded, for example. They say they're seeking God, but they're lying. They, they're deceiving people, and that happens all the time. Um, other people, maybe they're not lying. Maybe they're, they're sincerely open-minded, and they think that they're seeking out God and that sort of thing, but they're deceiving themselves. They're not willing to obey, and I've encountered that time after time with a lot of skeptics who claim that they, they are seeking God, Yet they admit, no, I would never obey that God. Even if I found out he was true, I would have nothing to do with him. So you've deceived yourself. You're not really seeking God at all. And that sort of thing, right? So that they pretend that they're seeking God. They're seeking a God made in their own image. You know, the God is I want him to be. But if God's the Christian God, whoa, nothing to do with that guy. I would never obey him. I would want nothing to do with that. So if the Christian God is true, well, there you go. You've deceived yourself into thinking you're really seeking God when you're just seeking an idol, a, a, a fake God, a false God of your own image. You're seeking yourself, really. So, yeah, that happens for a lot of people. And I can say, attest, I myself was deceived in this way. For years, I was a real seeker. Until in 2017, God put me to the test because I, I, at that point in my life, for a couple months, it seemed to me that Islam was true that the God of Islam was true, and I, I didn't like that. I didn't want to worship the God of Islam. I had this bias in favor of the Christian God. That's how I grew up. That's who I wanted to be true, and that bias became evident, and I really had to reckon with, well, look, I'm following the truth, and I want a relationship with God. And I, 
Allah is said to be morally perfect and that sort of thing. So if I'm going to be a real seeker, I need to follow the evidence to the best of my ability. And if that's pointing to Allah, then I need to be willing to obey him and have that relationship with him on his terms and trust and have faith that that is the morally moral religion or the moral the real version of god that i i'm supposed to follow to achieve my ultimate purpose in creation and i did that and became a real seeker but i had that test and um i realized i i was a little bit deluded before in my search i wasn't totally open totally really seeking god as he truly was until i did that so yeah you know there are things there are cases like this um that schellenberg is just totally ignorant of at least in his article he doesn't seem to acknowledge that any of these types of cases come up and he just seems to take people at their word well if they say they're seeking god they must be real seekers of god and stuff like that and that's a very naive view now that said i think schellenberg still succeeds here because i think it's true that there are real seekers that fulfill all three of these criteria and yet god still remains hidden to them at certain points certainly i was like that even even after i had my islam incident it took two years for god to reveal himself the true him true self his true self as the christian god to me before i converted and that sort of thing after the fact so why didn't god reveal himself as soon as i was a real seeker uh why did it take two years why did he hide himself for two year two whole years before revealing himself and herein comes the third disanalogy, and this is where I say God, it's based on the God and the greater good objection. Um, so this is not so much looking at the disanalogies between us and the young child of the analogies, but now it's comparing, well, what are the differences or disanalogies of a loving God and the loving mother of Schellenberg's analogies? Well, um, as everybody knows, I'm a Molinist, and I think that God has mental knowledge, so he knows what every free-willed creature in the libertarian free will sense of the word would do in any given set of circumstances and on that basis god creates the best one of the two best possible worlds two or more best possible worlds um where there's equal utility in this world and god as a maximal great being has to create the maximal amount of overall utility all things considered and the main basis for that is saving as many souls as possible or having an eternal loving relationship with as many free creatures as possible now having that eternal loving relationship necessarily in inherently requires the free will choice of the creature it can't be imposed on us or forced on us uh, in violation of our free will otherwise that's not loving and it's not a good eternal relationship that would be worthy of the name that would be satan using us as puppets or love puppets or something like that so god has to work within limits and achieve the best calm possible result uh you know in terms of everything uh from the butterfly effect and chaos that we, we understand that even the tr most trivial of things has a can have a major impact i mean the assassination of franz ferdinand who would have predicted world war one and all the events all just coming from that imagine he wasn't assassinated and the entirely different sets of causal chains that would have resulted and Think of the movie Sliding Doors, I think it was, with Gwyneth Paltrow, where the simple event of her getting on the subway versus not making it on the subway because certain things 
closed led to totally different worlds uh, with radically different results. So um, human beings are too finite to understand all of the causal chains across all the millennia of human history. And what impact, if, if I eat a cookie today, what will happen a thousand years from now? God knows, but he, no human being does. Uh, maybe if I eat that cookie for breakfast today, a thousand more souls will be saved in the future. If I don't eat it, uh, 2,000 soul, more souls will be damned or not freely choose to enter that loving relationship with God because one thing leads to another and another leads to another and another leads to another and these, these you know, other impacts, external influences influence our free will and we may make a, a choice opposite to what we should. You know, I, I might choose not to enter a relationship with God and that sort of thing. So given this all things considered approach, maximal great being want to achieve and set about these, the causal chains that allow for the most number of free-willed creatures to freely choose to have an eternal loving relationship uh, with him. So it could be that revealing himself right away to any and all real seekers could be counterproductive. It may be that that leads to causal chains that in the long run, you know, in the, in the God's eye view of all of human history, that leads to 5,000 less souls choosing to enter a loving relationship. And on that basis, God knows for the sake of the greater good, it's good to delay himself and not reveal himself to any and all real seekers at the precise moment. So I think that God is only obligated to reveal himself to any and all real seekers before the point of no return, before his not revealing himself would cause that person not to enter an eternal loving relationship with him or, or that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I think we have to have this understanding. And this is totally disanalogous to the loving mother in, in Schellenberg's analogies. I mean, loving mothers are selfish and immoral at times. They care more about their kids than anyone else. God can't do that. He loves about all his kids. So a proper analogy would be uh, a loving mother that has multiple kids in multiple situations. She has to decide and make the best. Uh, okay, well, I've got five kids. I can either save five of my kids here or this one kid from this Jaguar. I'm going to go with the five. That's what God does. And sometimes that unfortunately leads to the one guy getting killed or being not being responded to or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, um, obviously in my case, I, I don't think that there there is no real seeker who's analogous to the young child who doesn't eventually get responded to before the point of no return. So truly the analogy would be, well, mother's going to save the five now and then go back for the one kid on his own and save him in a nick of time before it's too late. But um, I'm just trying to get, get across this notion that there are greater goods and God has limits as to what he can do based on needing our free will decision to play a role in achieving the maximal great outcome that's calm possible and that sort of thing. So I, I don't think it's realistic to say, oh, well, we would expect the mother to respond quickly. No, sometimes it's not always um, able. God's not always able to respond quickly, but he, he responds as quickly as possible that results in his overall providential goal of the greatest outcome or the maximal amount of great good utility in the form of uh, as many free creatures having an eternal loving relationship with him for all eternity and choosing to have another very important disanalogy between the quote-unquote loving mother and our loving God is once again God is morally perfect this places limits on what he can do God can't lie to save 
to save a soul or to have a relationship. He can't engage in sinful behavior in order to save a soul. He has to work within the con. The means don't justify the ends for him in, in this respect. He has to not, he can't sin, uh, is what I'm trying to say, or do something that's evil uh, to achieve a greater good and that sort of thing, at least not directly. He can allow or permit uh, evils to take place given our free will as, as creatures and that sort of thing. But that's totally different than him actually directly doing something evil uh, to achieve an end. So yeah, that's totally different than the loving mother. I mean, loving mothers are selfish, immoral people. They, they do whatever it takes to protect their kids. They don't care if their kid's a serial killer or a serial rapist. They'll, they'll defend him no matter what to prevent him from going to jail and stuff like that. Um, and this, this is a common experience with loving things. They don't care about what's morally right. They just care about protecting their own little kids. Uh, and their own kids, no matter what bad they do. And this happens all the time. This can't happen with God. So this is another fundamental disanalogy. I um, with that said, that covers it in terms of my assessment. Um, yeah, I, I find that Schellenberg's analogy is way too simplistic, covers none of the nuance or the re provable realities of the situation. Um, and it fails for that reason. It's, it's a false analogy. Uh, it's a, and therefore a fallacious argument and doesn't succeed. If you want, uh, th even this analogy won't be great, but if you want something closer to it, you have to picture a mother that has millions of kids in different states. Some are not real seekers. Some really are seeking. Some are in different situations, you know, uh, such as all the three scenarios and other ones. And also she's going to have kids thousands of years in the future and millions of and and that sort of thing over the millennia past present and future she also has to care about and take into consideration to achieve the best possible results of saving as many of her kids and having that relationship with them as many of them as possible and you know that entails certain trade-offs uh you know she can't do everything and that sort of thing so if you start putting it in that light that'll begin to make this analogy more realistic um, to the situation between God and God seekers or seekers as uh, Schellenberg calls it but as of right now it's too simplistic shows no nuance and is totally unrealistic and therefore disanalogous to what we have uh, with the situation of, between God and, and those who seek him so my conclusion based on the analogy argument is God is probably not hidden and um, even if he was he would have a morally justified reason thereby negating any expectation we would have for him not to be hidden in certain circumstances or situations. So, uh, utter failure on Schellenberg's part. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, that's it for now. And yeah, like like I said, next week um, I'll post up the proselytize or apostatize show, or possibly I'll have a, a guest, Dr. Class Crayon. Um, we're in the works right now for, for the when on that front. So that'll be a great show. So, all right, until then, take care.